Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I hope you're well. I'm great. This week I have a guest that I have wanted to not just have on my podcast, but I've just wanted to kind of properly, properly meet her and chat to her. And I've selfishly used all of you as an excuse to do that. Her name is Zoe Lister-Jones. She is an actress, a writer, a producer. She's just one of the funniest and coolest and and most unique people on television. And I'm, I'm completely obsessed. I have been for years since I was much younger than I am now now and I've just kind of grown up alongside her watching her career and just kind of marvelling at how different and wonderful she is and so I asked her to come onto my podcast to talk about her film How It Ends because I thought it was a very poignant story for what's happening in the world right now I mean she literally shot it mid-pandemic it's not about the pandemic it's about a kind of alternative version of the world ending and I think there was a, a large period of time in which we all kind of felt like that was happening. I think there are still days now where it feels that way when we're, you know, watching the news and learning about the climate. And this film is about what you would do if you found out you had one day left on Earth. And it's so introspective and relatable and uh, such an interesting idea. And it kind of just led to a really big conversation, not just about the film and about, you know, how much of that came from Zoe in and of herself, but also... Uh, her life as a filmmaker, what it was like to shoot in the middle of a pandemic, what it's like to be able to use your role as a woman in power to usher in other women to to build your team around as a, a on a film set. But we also talked a lot about her mental health, something that she's been very open about and was especially candid. I think more so than on some other podcasts she's done. So I felt very honoured that she was open with me, uh, where we talked a little bit about eating disorders, anxiety, depression. Uh, She does, I just want to trigger warning you all, uh, she does mention suicidal ideation, but we talk about it for truly about three seconds. So so I just want to give you that heads up if that's something that you don't feel ready for. Um, But generally, we're just kind of talking about overall mental health, neediness, what pathetic teenagers we both were. It was very bonding. You kind of get to hear us fall in love. That happens sometimes on this podcast uh, where you hear my inner child meet someone else's inner child and uh, become best friends and want to eat together in the cafeteria at lunch uh, every day. Uh, I totally adore her. I thought I thought I would and I adore her way more than I even thought I would. And uh, just for an update, shortly after we had this chat... Zoe did text me and this will make sense later when you listen to the episode because we both have anxiety about not being texted back. I immediately texted back and then she invited me out to hang out and I texted back and uh, I um, I went and hung out with her. So it happened. We actually met IRL and hung out in real life, texted each other back and started a friendship. So that's weird. You get to hear the beginning of that on this podcast. Uh, but yeah, she's a joy. She's so 
so wonderful. Follow her online, follow her career, watch all of her work. All of it has got such an important message. And just enjoy this chat with a delight of a human. This is Zoe Lister-Jones. Zoe Lister-Jones, I can't believe you're here. Hello and welcome to Iowa. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, I was just, we were taking our picture together just now for the podcast and I was thinking back to 10 years ago to the first time I ever saw you on television where I developed an immediate comedy crush because <laughs> I, I, you know, and I've said this to you before whilst gushing at you, but I was just like, she's so hot and weird. She's so <laughs> hot and brilliantly weird and has the most unusual <sighs> delivery and comic timing. Um, I just zoned in on you from that moment. So this is my 10 year oh, anniversary man. of my obsession with you. And so now to even be taking this picture with you and having this chat is just like, I'm just still a little nerd who gets starstruck. <laughs> oh yeah right i'm serious oh my god i mean i've been a fan of yours for so long so it's i'm i'm equally starstruck and nervy and oh, so um, funny and you've only gotten hotter and weirder over the 10 thank years. you so much I, I was... could <laughs> maybe weirder than hotter but but i think that that's good i think that's the way it should be Un- untrue how has your um mental health been your whole life um, <laughs> is this an hour-long podcast yeah <laughs> okay um well uh, my birthing experience no, i'm just kidding <laughs> when i was born it was pretty intense um uh it was intense though i will say I <laughs> wait why what happened well it was my mom went through 28 hours of labor um <laughs> but the woman next to her there's like a, just a, such a heavy way to like kick it off. But the woman, she was sharing a hospital room. I was, I was born in New York at Lenox Hill Hospital. And um, she was sharing a hospital room with a woman who lost her baby. So it's, it was like, I think, uh, obviously just the, I don't think I, I was cognizant of that, but energetically, it's a strange way to be brought into the world because there's a lot of mourning and grief, you know, like amidst the celebration. Um, Oh my goodness. So we'll start there. But then, um, uh, it's gotten better since then. Um, you know, like, I think I've just always been an anxious, I was a really anxious kid. Um, and I think I put a lot of my feelings around like lack of control in my, in my life as a kid, like around my parents' separation or feeling unsafe, in the neighborhood that I grew up in Brooklyn or this was also before Brooklyn was, um, not to age us both out of, <laughs> yeah. uh, out of Do the it. youth, but you know, this was before Brooklyn was like chic and full of sourdough and broke. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this was, it was a whole different New York. It was, yeah. Brooklyn in the eighties was, um, a, a little rough. And, um, and so I think all of those, all of that, the lack of a sense of control that I had, I like definitely, developed a lot of just um overwhelming anxiety from a young age and I think I I directed a lot of that need for control in, around food um from a pretty young age like from and I know that's you know a, a through line of this podcast I'm so so grateful for all the work that you do in this space um but yeah from like a very 
I would say from around like seven, I started to, I cut out all sugar from my diet and um, I started to like, just be super like hyper disciplined around what I was eating. Where did the idea even to give up sugar at seven years? Because I feel like sugar was my childhood. Like it's the last thing I would have (laughs) given up. I hate discomfort. When you were talking about your birthing story, I remember the fact that mine was like a three hour labor for my mother and they were like, oh, we're going to have to use forceps. And as soon as they said the word forceps, I shot out. (laughs) I shot out. I hate discomfort. So I can't imagine a small child, a single digit child voluntarily knowing to give up sugar, knowing that sugar, uh, that giving up sugar is a discipline. Where did you learn that? Well, I think I was raised in like a very health conscious household. So I understood like I had a lot of, um, I had like, a lot of congestion issues. And so my mom cut out cow's milk from a young age. So I was like on soy milk. This was also the eighties. So it was like, you know, my mom is like a, an, and dad both came of age in the sixties. So, you know, there was like a lot of sort of hippie culture around natural foods and, and uh, moving away from processed foods and stuff. So well, I think I was soy milk tasted like <laughs> actual ass in the eighties. It was, it really was actual ass. Uh, I, I said ask because I like the way it sounds. Um, I think both of my parents had struggled with their weight. And I think as kids do, you just sort of absorb those things cellularly, you know, like unconsciously. And I, my my mom, her family put a lot of focus on the thinness of the women in in the family and those who weren't thin or didn't, um, fit into that sort of archetype who were like bullied and made fun of. And I witnessed that happen to my mom a lot. And I witnessed happen- it happened to me as a kid. And I wasn't like overweight, but I, I was called fat and stuff and, and in school too. So I think, I don't know where the sugar thing came from specifically, but I just remember that then, you know, at, at a really young age and I was so small, I lost a, quite a bit of weight, but I wasn't like starving myself. You know, I was like, I was still eating. I was just really disciplined. But did it, did that lead to like a kind of, cause I had a very, very similar journey. I come from a family of lots of larger people and then some very, very thin people. And it's a real just roll of the dice genetically. And to see the bigger people so ostracized from such a young age kind of gave me an immediate understanding of yeah. the correlating weight with social status. Yes. And then that only gets reinforced by magazines, only gets reinforced at an all-girls school. Um, and then again, similarly uh, bullied at school over my size when I was no, you know, no one should, mm-hmm. at any size should, but I wasn't at, by no means. I didn't look as though, I looked like every other child. In my yeah, opinion, I look same. Back. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned that like, uh, school bullying and stuff kind of carried on in different ways. Was that related to your image or was that related to, I remember reading that you'd kind of been quite androgynous looking at some point mm-hmm. when you were younger. And so people used to misgender you and, and etc. like you were otherized at school. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I shaved my head when I was 11 mm-hmm. and I hadn't gone through puberty yet. So I was really androgynous and I was constantly misgendered. And that was right when I started a new school. I was in public school. And then um, for seventh and eighth grade, even though my mom couldn't afford it, she um, asked her friend to help her out to put me in a private school just for those two years because it felt like um, she thought that's where I would get the best education. And 
so I went to this sort of Tony uh, private school with this shaved head and I was just like targeted just every day. And it was awful. I really wanted to not be there, but my friends were a lot, were like, as I mentioned, you know, two to three years older and they were in this cool public high school in Brooklyn. And so I ended up like escaping after two years of torture and I spent most, most of my time with them. But, um, but yeah, like at that point, I was getting like both an interesting amount of like negative attention and positive attention because kids my age were giving me a lot of negative attention, but older kids thought I was really cool. <laughs> so I, I had this like um, this sort of dichotomy, these two worlds that I was living in. But at that point, yeah, I was. Um, it's so funny to hear this just because like, I, I look at your um, your Instagram more than I care to admit. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but, I, uh, no, but when looking at your Instagram, you, you often like kind of post throwbacks. And I feel like in the last year and a half, I don't know if it's because you've been going back through old photographs, yeah. but I've seen a bunch. And I've kept on thinking and imagining what I thought, because we we all do this. We all project what we imagine someone's life is like. And yeah. you just look so cool in all the fucking photographs. <laughs> like everything looks like a Nirvana video. <laughs> and like, you just, like you, all your friends look really cool. And I was like, oh, she had the best fucking time. No wonder she's so like, funny and bubbly. <laughs> Yeah, and right. it's so funny to hear you talk and within 10 minutes uh, just recognize that it's so easy to project an idea of someone else's, I don't know, like success at popularity or success at being. Oh, totally. Or like, I, yeah, I was I, I was thinking this like today where I project like that everyone is more well adjusted than me. <laughs> just like, oh, that person has it figured out. I think we all do it. And, mm-hmm. and, and childhood is, is such a. Yeah, like I'm always really interested in people's childhoods because I, I always think about, like I didn't have a boyfriend ever <laughs> until I was uh, in college, and um, and I felt really invisible and um, like kind of repulsive in many ways because I I was this this like um, weirdo, you know, um, and I think about people who did have boyfriends in high school, who they could have like, um, who, who they explored intimacy with in a way that may, might've felt safe and like how that impacts their relationship to intim- intimacy as adults. It's like one of the, it, the second I see a person, I'm like, I wonder what their relationship is to intimacy and what kind of, what kind of relationships they had in high school. And not just like straight relationships, but you know, girls having girlfriends and, and having those explorations too Everything. and boys having boyfriends. Everything. Yeah. I'm terrified of girls in a way that I'm kind of like slowly but surely starting to get better with uh, past the point of the age of 30. You know, <laughs> but that's how traumatized I was by secondary school and all of my poor listeners mm. have had to hear many, many a childhood bullying story. Um, but also... Uh, I had my first kiss at 21, so I feel you. And so it, wow. so it made me, um, it, I had a similar feeling of like, am I a, and, and by the way, lots of people who listen to this podcast are sort of getting into their 30s and they have not yet mm-hmm. lost their virginity and they write in about these mm. things and I just want everyone to not feel alone in this. Um, yeah. But I uh, at the, hated myself the whole time leading up to that. But, but then when it actually came to it, I felt glad that I had waited that long and that the person that at least I got lucky enough to kiss for the first time was much more experienced than me and a friend mm-hmm. and someone I'd chosen and really trusted. And so, you know, hopefully that'll be everyone else's experience if these are things you haven't done yet. Yes. What was your sort of college experience like with that? Because it's such a build-up because it's been so fucking long and everyone's like seven years ahead of you. Such a build-up. I mean, I had a really... Um, 
I think because I felt so much, again, like an outsider, especially in terms of like where I should be uh, in terms of sexual intimacy. I'm sure you had those same Mm -hmm. sort of anxieties of like, I'm going to look like such a fool. You know, my friends, like, my friends know. all gave me a copy of The 40-Year-Old Virgin. So, I mean, mine wasn't like <laughs> subtle. It wasn't just like in my head. <laughs> very, yeah. Um, very mainstream. I, yeah. I didn't have... Um, so, I guess like before I got a boyfriend, I I was... I think I was... I, ha- I was trying to catch up in a way that was not safe. Um, and that I think d- definitely amplified some intimacy issues and trust issues. And, um, I I think I just was looking like, I felt that, um, sex should be transactional just so I could kind of get it over with. And, um, and so then, yeah, there wasn't like a safe space to explore really. Um, and I also just like generally, uh, you know, am attracted to withholding people who are kind of mean to me so <laughs> oh my god same by the way big same uh, yeah. we have way more in common than I first realized hysterical. Um, I was so bad at being around people that I found attractive when I was younger that I would uh, panic and if I ever was invited to a house party which would normally happen via some sort of error where someone had sent out a group <laughs> message to the school no one ever like specifically was like you must be there uh, but I would panic and I would give myself jobs at the parties so I would like the clean up crew within yeah clean up crew by myself so crew <laughs> of one uh, where I would find a trash bag or anything I could oh. and I would be uh, taking empty cups and plates and throwing them away and sort of just tottering around um giving my just cleaning up after everyone like cleaning up anything I like puke I think I one time cleaned up oh it wasn't my God. own horrifying and then another big one to go to was coat check at house party oh so that is just like that is a level of sad <laughs> that I will never I will never come back from when people make fun of me on the internet I'm always like you don't even know, it's like, you think I'm pathetic. You don't right. even know how pathetic yeah. I am. I was like, this is not a serve when you're telling, <laughs> when you're making fun of me. It's like, you don't even know, you don't, like, I have so much more ammunition for you. You can't possibly think I'm as sad as I think I was. I would start a coat check at house parties where I would, not even for money or anything, it wasn't like a hustle. That at least would have like been, I could have bought myself something afterwards, sure. like a game yeah. But I would, I would set up like a place and I would, you know, take the coats to the, to the bed and I would wait till the very end of the party in case anyone needed their coat, <gasps> you know. And these are drunk people I... that 14 year old me is contending with and being like the green, the green coat. Oh yeah, 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 great. And I would really like, I'd work really fucking hard. Some people would tip me. It was insane. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I didn't have my first kiss when I was 21, Zoe. <laughs> You're invited to any party. You're invited to any party I throw, Jamila. I, I always love a cleanup crew of one or a coat check girl. I will say that in, when I was in high school, I would go to parties with like my like three other like weirdo girlfriends and we would bring mm-hmm. our own mixtape and we'd find a room, like usually like a parent's office and close the mm-hmm. door and it would just be the four of us where we'd dance to our own music 
in a room where none of the other oh, people fuck were. You. Don't relate to my story with something that's a scene out of euphoria. No, that is not. No, Jamila, that is not cool. You are not in touch with Gen Z. You are not in touch with Gen Z at all. That is exactly the kind of behavior they promote marching no. to the beat of your own drum with your fucking cool side shaves that I saw you had when no. you were younger and your dyed hair, no. dancing to your own, probably probably the Smiths. Listen, like, oh, how dare the elder you? Millenn- how dare you try and relate to, to my labor, my house party labor with your extremely cool individualist, no. like self-autonomous story that you went, like the fact that you went with, the fact that you had friends. Just three. I only had three. And I'll say this though, and I'm sorry, (laughs) but for us elder millennials, that was not cool yet. It was, we should have been socializing so that we could have been relating to other people, you know, our age. But instead, because we were so like made fun of, we were like, let's just avoid them altogether and we'll just go but we did go, but like, same as you, like we knew that it was like a mistake that we were invited, but we would go mm-hmm. and then we'd like protect ourselves by like locking ourselves in a, yeah, in a room. Sure. Okay. Well, okay. yeah, that sounds really <laughs> traumatic. <laughs> I think that's so cool. That's literally all I wanted to do. I wanted to go oh, and listen man. to Nirvana with someone. Let's do it. Room, we can still do instead it. I was, we're going to This do is it. what our inner <laughs> children are asking for. <laughs> This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week you know as you're bottling things up because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to and this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week you just have this complete freedom honestly I think everyone should have therapy regardless of whether they think they need it because it's so amazing to have a confidant it's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iway today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iway. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. 
Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. We both have anxiety about not being texted back. Oh, big anxiety, right? You have this. It's, it's so big. In fact, I was talking to my therapist about it just like a couple of days ago because like the feelings are so big. And I don't know if they yeah. come like this to you, like, like, and I like joke about it, but it's actually like, I, I'm like, de- <laughs> I'm like fucking devastated. And, um, and for like the waiting period for the 24 hours or 36 hours or however, you know, many ungodly hours people make you wait in 2021 for a text back, like I go so dark. I'm just like, I mean, also dependent on who that person is to me, but generally I'm just like, I go to such a young place of rejection yeah, I immediately think everyone's angry with me. Yeah. I know I've done something wrong. I've annoyed someone. Yeah. I I'd like I worry this is so in so just like so over the top, but I sometimes think, did I slag them off to someone? Right. And then it got back to them. <laughs> even though I probably haven't, because I really don't shit on people that I know. But in my head I'm like, did yeah. I have a, a lapse of judgment? And I I shout on them to someone and, yeah. and then that person started like I I just start panicking. I know. And then I've got this extra layer of panic that's really deep because one time a friend didn't text me back all day and she was supposed to meet me and I couldn't get hold of her. And then finally I called her house phone and got through someone picked up the phone and I just started ranting about how like my whole day had been wasted by my friend. And um I was told that they were dead. So oh now that is a new yeah, yeah, pretty fucking intense. Oh so God. now I have two layers of rejection and death, both of which I'm certain is happening. Oh all the whilst, just to call myself out here, not being exceptional at texting people back <laughs> in the last year. So the like the hypo- the layers of hypocrisy, yes. the narcissism, right. the like that it must be about me. The, like rather the abandonment than just issues. busy. Yeah. Like you are always busy. And then death. And the most extreme possible reason. Oh my God, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm hopefully I can now infect everyone who's listening to this with that same effect. Yes. You're welcome. Yes. (laughs) Well, that is the ultimate. It's not personal. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, Oh my God. No, no, no. But you know, like, Um, and that is like the big lesson that I, I, I am trying so desperately to learn just in, in life. Wait, well, what do you do? Do you spiral? I yes. spiral. I, I spiral. You're getting, you're getting nine texts in a row from me. Apolo- <laughs> Pre-apologizing for something I don't even know yeah. that I've done. Like Oh, same. Um, like I was just in my head about a text that I haven't received back for like four hours that I was going to be like, listen, if you don't want to be a part of this friendship anymore... <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Just be honest like, with me. Just communicate it, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm oh like drafting it, you know, um, it's absolute lunacy. It's like, it's, but then <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice to talk to someone as unhinged. As oh I my am. God. I'm so unhinged. And this, there's this girl and I like, I really have a friend crush on her and I ran into her the other week and, and she's like, let's hang out. And I was like, Oh my God, I'd love to. And, uh, so I texted her the next day, like, that was so lovely running into you. Let's hang out. And she never texted me yeah. back. And the entire, this entire week, I was just like, same as you, like, what did I do? Did I write, did I write too quickly? You know, did, was I, was I over eager mm-hmm. or did mm-hmm. I, did, did someone get to her and say, I'm a terrible person. And then today she DM'd me and it was like, as though nothing happened. And 
there was no there was not she doesn't even know about this entire has, existential crisis that she led no, you to and were you not. were you super breezy and super breezy i was back. like hey girl <laughs> <laughs> i forgot i texted you <laughs> it's a night it's a nightmare prison I don't know how to escape that's it's so tricky and then are you the same in kind of like bigger interpersonal relationships where you would just sort of like read instant rejection into people absolutely and I've been like talking about it so much to this one one friend of mine who um who's similar I'm sure everyone has you know shades of this to varying degrees but yeah like my first assumption is always that um everyone hates me <laughs> it's just like a, well, yeah. well i don't thank you I don't. and I, 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 thank you I, I like you very much thank you so much I, we're gonna have to keep each other in check yes that would be great <laughs> i think that's important yeah it's just school shit it's all school shit it just yeah. never leaves never goes away i'm still i'm so quickly reduced to my 12 year old self yeah oh yeah and i mean it's scary and that i think in the last and i've done a lot of work on myself sorry go on same <laughs> doing the work <laughs> yeah. but um yeah I mean I was just gonna say that in the last year and a half I think our younger selves have been under an even um I don't know like a, a magnifying a, glass. yeah a bigger magnifying glass that that has made them and they're screaming you know for our attention so I think there's been a lot of that work to be done but also once you start digging it's like then you really uncover just how loud those voices are and is that what inspired because one of the things i wanted to talk to you about today is your wonderful movie how it ends and uh which i enjoyed the themes of so much it was such a a moving film i have 900 questions about (laughs) it but a large part of that film i would say you're kind of your co-star in that film is metaphysical it's your younger self Mm -hmm. Was that inspired by what rose up within the pandemic? Yeah. Um, Daryl Wine and I uh, wrote it together and we, it was about like two months into the pandemic that we started writing it, to, to quarantine that we started writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, um, yeah, I think a way to process how loudly uh, those voices were echoing. Um, that sort of well, like- that was quick. It was quick. Yeah. Not just quick to write it, but also quick for that to surface. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people pre-quarantine were like already coming up against, I don't know, a lot of shit. I mean, everyone's always coming up against shit, but I just feel like there were like big life things for a lot of the people that I know that then were like um, compounded by suddenly this new normal that made all of those things just that much more. Uh, yeah, I, I feel as though that might be partially because there's been like a kind of reckoning of mainstream conversations and like destigmatization of mental health issues. Yeah. People probably realized only for the first time, maybe in the last four or five years, that they were abused yeah. or they have depression or anxiety. It took a lot of a lot of very big conversations, often with some very famous people yeah. talking about it in a way that destigmatized it that made us all realize, oh, maybe that's me. Yes, totally. And to be able to just so, name it. And I think it's so... It, I mean, this is a, a tangential, but I feel like Gen Z is, it's exciting. So clued up. Yeah. yeah. Like, because they just know how to name, name it, uh, you know, and that's like, just that is half the battle. But, um, but anyway, yeah, we started, we started writing it. I was doing a lot of inner child work with my therapist. Um, and I was like being like tasked with 
therapy homework of like writing letters to my inner child. And I did not know how to do it. So I, I think I tried to do it uh, in the form of a screenplay and try to figure out what I needed to say to her um, in order to sort of assuage her fears. Yeah. Will you break down what the film is about? It's um, It takes place on the last day on Earth. A meteor mm-hmm. is um, going to hit um, Earth at like 2 a.m. And it's something that we've all in the film been preparing for for months. So it's an apocalyptic comedy <laughs> that is like very self-reflective. There, it's, there's no zombies. There's like no <laughs> violent mayhem. It's really just like um, sort of a Zen, a Zen take on the last day on earth during which my character is on like a journey with her younger self across Los Angeles to make it to the, to the final party hosted by Whitney Cummings. <laughs> and along the way she runs into some, you know, kooky characters, some of whom are like parents, ex best friends, ex lovers to sort of have her to say her piece before we all explode. And you shot it during the pandemic. And I found like that to be one of the things that moved me the most while watching it. It's just, it's so funny how far apart all of the characters yeah. are standing. Because obviously this was the very beginning. We didn't, we really didn't know anything. Yeah. So everyone's standing sort of 10 to 20 feet away from each <laughs> yeah. other and everything. It was so cleverly shot uh, in a way that also doesn't feel odd for the movie because it's like the end of the world. Everyone's like, it's, everything's very kind of deserted. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people are strangers in these scenes, yeah. so, you know, who you're coming up against. And, um, and I, I wonder what that was like. <laughs> it's such a wild timestamp of this yeah. period that we will now always have. You will always have the document of that. Yeah. And also you had fucking everyone <laughs> yeah. in this film. I have never seen more cameos in any film. <laughs> I know. Every single comedy person I love was in it. It was such a joy to behold that sort of every five minutes, someone else I adore pops oh, up thanks. in this film well done for getting everyone out of the house in a <laughs> pandemic yeah it was it was quite early so that there were challenges there too like those conversations were interesting i luckily have like a lot of um very talented friends but the conversations were like less about covid safety because i think you know we felt very confident even though it was early that the entire film was being shot outdoors and at least six feet apart um and it was a crew of three people uh, and everyone was doing their own hair and makeup and their own wardrobe. And it was a really intimate, you know, creative experience in that way. But I think in terms of emotional safety, there were a lot of other questions that came up, like, because it was a, it is, you know, it, it's, it's poignant as a film tonally, but it is a comedy. And I think for a lot of my very funny friends, the question was like, can I show up and be funny right now as the world mm-hmm. is so bleak and as I'm facing my own demons every morning? Um, and I think because of like the nature of the narrative, which is that it is, was already the end of the world, which we didn't want to make a COVID centered movie, but we wanted to make something that was sort of adjacent in terms of the emotional landscape um, that we were just like, you can show up in whatever sp- state you're in. And that is your character. And there, there should, you should feel no pressure to perform something that doesn't feel authentic to your, to your real life self. Yeah. Um, And I think that was actually really cathartic for all of us at that time, because there was so little sense of play. I mean, there, it was such a, a scary and uncertain time and um, a time that felt like it could be the end of the world as well. Very much so. And I think that was like part of the inspiration too, because it felt like the end of the world, but like 
for those of us who weren't frontline workers, like we were watching Netflix in sweatpants, you know, and it was like this strange dichotomy of like the end of the world meeting this very banal existence, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think we wanted to sort of capture that, that, that strange intersection. Um, and, and also, like you said, have it serve as a, a time capsule. Yeah. And also that it, it was very like thought provoking in that, you know, your character makes a decision early on in the film to kind of she makes a kind of checklist of everything she's going to do that day and some of that is uh, you know making amends and then some of it is also bearing grudges and carrying those grudges through to the apocalypse which I think I felt very seen by personally uh, that felt more me than making amends um I'm from a, a tribe called we called Patans and um and my, my lineage is from there. And like one of the things that's most known about us, according to my family, not just my family, but all Patans, is that we live for revenge. So it's like in my DNA. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I fucking love a grudge. Like I'm not about being the bigger person. I'm no. about being the smallest yeah. person. When they go you low, see you me. go I'm lower. So I go lower <laughs> yeah. 100%. I, literally my, my, my political slogan. Um, I'm just, I stink because I'm always in the gutter. I'm just fighting in the gutter. <laughs> I respond to individuals on on Twitter. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah they're eleven. Yeah, so what? So what? <laughs> Let's get in the gut yeah. together. <laughs> Person young enough to be my child. Yeah. You um, have agency yeah. at eleven. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, so I felt yeah, I felt very seen by that, and it kind of it led me to think about what I would actually do if it was the last mm-hmm. day on earth so are those things that you would actually do i want to know i want to know what you would do (laughs) um what would like you know what 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 would your actual last day be like was that reflective yeah like are there people you want to make amends with and yeah i think it was definitely reflective i don't think my character is too dissimilar from zlj but um i think it it would be about human connection and 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 that was at the time (laughs) what we were all like so starved for why are you laughing? I would take a shit on the doorstep of every person who bullied me at school. <laughs> While you were saying that incredibly emotional and like just sort of well, you know what, Jamila, Buddhist enlightened <laughs> thing. I was imagining myself taking a shit on the doorstep of people who I haven't seen in ten years. But that is also human uh, connection. That is that is that is human connection. Um, that is so aspirational, really. Um, <laughs> I've talked to my friends who like, I have one friend who grew up in Miami and she would like, like she would shit on people's doorsteps as pranks, like as a <laughs> kid. And I was like, that's a thing. But it's very Jared Leto of her yeah. word. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's time to reclaim that prank. Um, yeah, I think I would. I, I don't know. And I'd like to like celebrate in, in some way, like dance, fuck, eat, all the things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, eating would be huge on my list. I, you know, I'm allergic to gluten, so I would just have all, all the gluten. gluten. And just, I think of this all the time. Yeah, I think of all of like last day on earth. Yeah, what gluten am I going to eat? And what would it be? Because it doesn't make a damn difference. No. It's we're talking bagels. Right. We're talking big old bagels. Big old bagels. Big old fucking bagels full of cream cheese. Yeah. Cow's milk yeah. cream cheese. Uh, yeah, it's all all of the the rye bread. Uh, really you'd go you'd go rye it's big jewish big jewish uh, gluten (laughs) fan (laughs) 
matzo. You're not going pizza or pasta. I love that you're no, just just like deli. I'm going straight, yeah, straight, straight deli. to the deli. Yeah, I love that for you. I would do the straight same. Straight to Cantor's. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And obviously there'd be some donuts in that. It'd be it would be it would be a big day. Yeah. Also, I would need that to be able to shit on the doors. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you have it's none of my business um but nor is anything i've asked you about today uh do you have do you have a significant amount of people that you feel like you haven't made amends with in your life no um but so short apocalypse day for you <laughs> no but there are th- there are people that i haven't said what i wanted to say to do you know what i mean right. like so yeah. i think there are some people that like and it's not even amends i think there are there are some people that i have unfinished business <laughs> right oh god you really said that with all of your teeth and your tits like you said it with everything you gotta say it with your tits Jamila. Yeah, um well if i know anything <laughs> <it's> that. <laughs> um that's so that's so interesting you are so i mean are we got how far back are we going oh let's go all the way back like i want to go to oh, <laughs> i'd go to, i'd go to junior hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if junior i go to junior high, high school Okay. That's a long so list. Is... It's, if we only have one day, no, I'd go to, I'd go to college. I'd start, I'd start with college. There's too many people. Right. I think, yeah, I th- I think I'm, I'm going, I'm going all the way back. <laughs> I'm going all the way back. Do you, do you still, um, again, none of my business, but do you still have any kind of, uh, restrictive eating practices now? Oh yeah. <laughs> major. Oh, sure. Major, 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 major. Um, so what are you eating on the last day of earth? I think it would be similar bagels. Uh, and then film, I eat pancakes. That would be big. I love a challah French toast. We're going, you know, I love. A <laughs> so we're going to the deli together. That's so exciting. <laughs> we are. We really are. No, I, um, I don't eat gluten or dairy or soy or corn. There's, I have so many things because like my, my gut is so freaking sensitive. Um, and of course those things are, confusing what like where that becomes also you know control control and, and bo- disordered eating 100 yeah the thing is i'll let myself you know like i'll smoke a joint and then i'll be like let's party but then my stomach hurts so much <laughs> and then i'm like that sucks is it worth it you know um and so that this, this is sort of my struggle generally speaking are you are you like sort of seeking to find a way out of the psychological aspect of that? Yes. Like where are you at with yeah. that kind of journey of your kind of body control? I, yeah, I would love I would love a way out. Yeah, and the, and the and it's I think when the patterns are so old, <laughs> as you know, it's like a it's a difficult thing to shift gears on, especially because there's so much like around stuff that uh, that is confirmed by like doctors in terms of like, yeah, you have these sensitivities to these things. Like they will make you feel crummy. Totally. And I never want to delegitimize those because I certainly have a lot of sensitivities myself or allergies, like down straight up allergies. But I also know that some of these things are so again, like fully are not just our industry, but I feel like our entire world, Mm -hmm. like social media has very much so democratized this, but I also feel as though restrictions are, again hypernormalized in a way that i think is fantastic because we've really given people with allergies a fucking hard time yeah i've been one of those people who everyone just sort of rolls yeah. their eyes when i tell them i have an allergy to yeah. 
uh, <laughs> and they think I'm doing it because it's trendy as if anyone's ever had fun yeah, really. eating like what was essentially just like sort of buttered bark <laughs> back in the 90s. Um, you can't even have matzo, you know? I have. It's been years. It's been years. It's, yeah. Um, I had the first 12 years of my life to just pass out and not know why whilst enjoying. Oh my God. Predominantly. Uh, I was eating like a hull of like an entire hull loaf uh, a day. <laughs> wow. Every day. Yeah. They were large as well. Poppy seed covered. Um, and then just fainting oh, and farting wow. constantly. <laughs> uh, That's it, it, a really... It, maybe it explains a bit more about why no one wanted to sit uh, next to me. It's a thrilling combo. secondary yeah. school. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, and, and with your mental health journey, mm-hmm. do you feel as though the film helped you process any of the things that you had been struggling with? Is it also a time capsule of any... Have you found any recovery in the last year and a half? Or is it more that everything's just surfaced and you're kind of still sifting through it? No, I have found some recovery for sure. And I think the film was a really important way for me to process a lot of the the things that I was, um, that came into sharper focus, I think, over the last year and a half. And there's like a scene in the film between my younger self and I, who's played by Kelly Spaney, who's amazing. Um, She's so great. Yeah. So fucking great in this film. Yeah. um, Where you know, like she talks about like, remember when this all started, um, like when life didn't feel worth living. And I think it is like that thing for anyone who's had suicidal ideations or has attempted suicide or any of those things, or sort of just has a airs towards despondency. Um, Mm -hmm. I think those conversations with one's younger self are really important. Like when did those feelings really start to kick up and how do we talk to that person? Because when you're young, they can feel even more overwhelming, but then that young person who's so overwhelmed is still traveling with us every day on these journeys. So it was, it was incredibly cathartic. I mean, it's obviously a lifelong journey, but, um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I do feel that I'm, I'm on a path. Is, is there a particular thing that you want your younger self to know? Like having done all this investigation, is there like a thing you most want to grab skinhead <laughs> Zoe Lister-Jones at 11 years old and, and tell her? Oh gosh. You know, like, I guess that you don't have to be perfect to be worthy of love, um, which is sort of a cliche, but I think that's kind of what it all boils down to. It's like... Um, well, I, I don't think she would have been able to know that you know 20 years from then she would be able to in the middle of a pandemic wrangle all of these beloved people not just beloved personally yeah. to her, but beloved by everyone who would come out in the middle of a global pandemic and and take a risk mm-hmm. uh, even though it's a small risk to just be in a thing that you made I mean you you wrote this film and co-directed it and mm-hmm. star in it and and you have all of these people in your life and everyone I know you're just like so beloved by um, anyone that I meet and that's so not no but that's so nice it's so nice to hear your kind of journey because I think a lot of us have gone through times or maybe someone right now is still going through that time I get messages like this all the time in my dms uh, especially when I bring on like a therapist onto the show of someone saying that you know will I and these aren't just teenagers the people in their 20s saying that you know I've kind of lost all my friends and am I ever going to have friends again or I've never really had great friendships do you think that's ever going to be something for me there's people who just so at the edge of like a level of loneliness that they can cope Mm. with and I I just want to reach through my phone and grab them and tell them that I felt that way so many times in my life and that 
the right people come along, I think, when you have the right attitude towards yourself. That's yeah. in no way blaming anyone for their circumstance. Yeah. But I do think that's also like a big undertone of your film is that the most, however many relationships you're trying to fix throughout this film, it's the one with yourself that just like, it just keeps coming back to that. Yeah. And I think that that's a really important allegory, I guess, for everyone. And and it's nice to hear of someone feeling so otherized in their family and in their community and uh, in school growing up to being able to to have this sort of happy surrounding, <laughs> even if even if you're not perfectly happy all the time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Even if these motherfuckers aren't texting me back. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. I within five minutes. <laughs> Thank you for saying all of that. I, I, it's um, yeah. I think it is. It it's so easy to feel alone um, and alienated in in those feelings, and it is so helpful. And I'm so grateful again to you for you know using your platform to talk about all of these issues because um it's so helpful you know to to just know that like so many people most people are struggling <laughs> with i know with, it's that they're not alone in their loneliness yeah. it's such it's this oddly like completely uh formative and bonding thing that we can yeah. all relate to yeah totally it's supreme levels of that especially in the last year and a half i think so many people have reckoned with that yeah so you are not alone and we are here yes. with you yes <laughs> really firm with, with a lot of experience <laughs> who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie famous amos has been making them since the 70s 1975 to be exact with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie and fans couldn't get enough that's right You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. about being a filmmaker this is not your first film you have been making your own films you've been using a lot of you know stuff within your relationship or your ex your experience as a woman mm -hmm. in all of the content that you have yourself made have you did you always want to be a filmmaker um well my mom is a video artist her name is Arda Lister I'll give her a shout out because I, I, I don't think she's ever gotten um the recognition she deserves and she's really brilliant uh, so I was raised in a household in which, um, you know, I was witnessing, I, I was, A, she was exposing me to a lot of incredible filmmaking, but also by, by many people, but also I was watching her really like delve into that intersection of like personal and political in her work that I think really inspired me from a young age, but I didn't know specifically that I wanted to be a filmmaker, um, for actually a, a while, like I, I didn't even know I wanted to be an actor. I think I knew I wanted to write because that always felt like um, a lifeline for me out of the sort of sludge of my depression and anxiety. But, um, but then I got an, a scholarship to, to Tisch drama school at NYU. And so I ended up going to acting school. And then from there, I, when I met Daryl, we started making films together but he was always the director so I was like 
I guess it, it's a loose term of what a filmmaker is, but we were co-writing and I was producing and I was starring, but he was the director. And it took me, I think until, yeah, like my early thirties to really feel that I could be a director too. Um, and I think it is a testament in many ways to that same like uh, lesson that I wanted to teach my younger self of like, you don't, that I think I, I felt that I needed to be perfect, which I think is a barrier to entry for a lot of women in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in many industries that you need, like, I felt like I needed to know so much more before I could start, but then you're never going to know all the things and, and every, you also meet the men and realize how much they're, and I know. to discredit them at all. Like, you know, but you realize how much of them are just making it up as they go along. Absolutely. I've met some of the, the creators of the biggest franchises in the world. And they're really just like, you know, when you break it down with them, you're like, you know, how did you come up with this? And they're like, Oh, I did. I didn't. Yeah. I have no idea what's happening. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a mess. Yeah. And you're like, oh shit, you're just, and this isn't, you know, this isn't a new conversation. We've seen statistics based on like how many men will go up for yeah. jobs that women don't even go up for. And those men are, are less qualified yeah. than the women who don't even try. Yeah. So I think that's definitely a, definitely a thing, but I'm thrilled that you're now at the helm, like kind of, you know, yeah. at the helm of this and, and, with people that you trust and with people who give you that space to do that. I think that's really cool. Thank you. Um, but I, but I also know that that's incredibly brave, especially considering the fact that, you know, I'd read that you'd grown up with, with two artist parents who, as you referenced, like weren't fully realized mm-hmm. for their talent. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that can, you know, drive people. I have people I know in my life who that has driven them forward to be like, I'm going to succeed yeah. just for me, but for my parents. Yeah. But also some people just become terrified because they see the heartache that comes with not being acknowledged for the thing that you've poured your heart and soul into. Yeah. Especially something as meaningful as what your mother was making. Yeah. Yeah. And my dad, Bill Jones, shout out, uh, is also mm-hmm. a, a, an amazing artist. And I think I witnessed that heartache that you just mentioned um, just so consistently throughout my childhood. Um, How did you overcome the fear then? Well, my mom encouraged me to go to drama school because I was like, I should not do that because that sounds like, Mm -hmm. you know, it sounds like I'm just, I I will, it will be a life of pain, which I wasn't wrong, but, um, (laughs) but she was like, no, you know, you should do it because I think she understood that it was something that I, um, loved to do. I, I just, I was very pragmatic. You know, I was like, I don't, and I think I wanted to avoid just like our financial circumstances. We were always broke and the emotional circumstances where they were always heartbroken. And there's so much, there's so much, there's so much more rejection than there is acceptance yeah. in an industry like this in any kind of when you pursue any kind of passion any kind of art it's the same as sports yeah um but plenty of things where something means the world to you the whatever that may be it may be biology but there's more space for your heart to be broken and so i i wonder i i want i come from a whole family of people who really wanted to be performers Mm. and i was the only one who didn't Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. That hasn't gone down very well, everyone. Um, but uh, that's all right. It's fair. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so I, you know, very reticent. I was very reticent to get into this and just kind of had to look at it as, okay, I'm not qualified. How fun. Mm. 
have fun. Let's see what I can get away with. Let's see how much shit I can take yeah. with me when I leave. Like, and, and the bigger a disaster it is and the more I humiliate myself, the funnier that story will be at the pub with my friends. Yeah. And so that's been my survival. That's out, such like, a good look. way of, I would love a little bit of that. I'd like, I'd like to borrow some of that from you. Um, yeah, I guess I didn't, I think I'm a person who I'm, I'm a hyperproductive person. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably, yeah, how I, um, that's my, my protective mechanism to, to like make things, finish things, get things out into the world so that I don't have to, there's heartache no matter what. I was going to ask you about that because I've never, I've never actually made something and put something out into the world. Everything I do is fairly low risk. <laughs> Because it's always just me making a fucking tit out of well. And I think for me, like comedy, even though comedy is hard, yeah. comedy is my safe space. Yeah. But you're putting full, fully packaged, you're like a musician making an album. It's a proper body of work. Yeah. So what's the emotional journey of that? Like when you put that out in the world and you take that risk and oh, I don't know, it's, there uh, always mixed results for everyone, no matter how big they are. Yeah, it's harrowing. It's just, it's there's no... <laughs> there's just no way for your heart not to be broken a thousand times along the way. And it's happened every time I I don't have children, but I, my friends who have children talk about like after the first labor, they're like, I'm never fucking doing that again. That was insane. And then like a year later they forget and they're like, we should get pregnant again, you know? And that's what it feels like every time (laughs) I make a film. (laughs) um, Because it is, it's, it's, it's pretty brutal. And I think sharing it is so vulnerable from across every stage of the process. Like sharing a script that you've written is so vulnerable because for every, I think for every screenwriter, there's going to be personal infusions. But for me, especially, I like, I really do just like, I use my, my screenplays as ways to process sort of my deepest existential queries. So, um, so that's really vulnerable. And then, and then making it and releasing it into the world is, you know, it's, it's hard because it's hard for many reasons, but critics can be very cruel and, um, and well, that's because it's not as good as the incredible body of work that they've put. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, and so, and all of that, so all of that is just, um, even just like the first film that Daryl and I made was called Breaking Upwards and no producer wanted to make it. And so that we made it guerrilla style out of, you know, um, sheer necessity. And then that opened a lot of doors, but, um, but then like a lot of success stories, even Band-Aid, which was my directorial debut, which, you know, was fairly successful, um, for an indie film, Nobody wanted to make it. I sent that script to everyone. Nobody wanted to make it. And so then I just went and decided to make it on my own. And so like every step of the way, even things that might look like successes in retrospect, there's so much rejection and there's just so much heartache. And I guess it, it's always learning how to navigate or like toe the line of learning from that rejection, but also like um, <laughs> also defying the gatekeepers. And saying, okay, well, yes. like, rather than just going like, okay, well, this one, this one they didn't like, so I'm going to shelve it. I was like, this one they didn't like, I'm going to make it. <laughs> it's like... I love that. <laughs> I think that's so important. I think it's especially important for for women to do that. Yeah. I think that's so, like, when we're, we're never told that we're allowed to do that. We're yeah. not allowed to learn. We're not allowed to grow. Yeah. I love it when I hear of someone who just 
who defies that that it's not just an inner voice it's the it's an outer it's it's the voice Mm -hmm. it's the loudest voice is one of don't try again yeah or don't do this you'll embarrass yourself and shunning that embarrassment because I know shame is a big thing for you and me huge yeah did you say shame and embarrassment are like two of the biggest (laughs) I think I've heard you say that before somewhere (laughs) like mine is guilt and fear I have no shame oh a problem yes oh no I would say shame and guilt are because shame and embarrassment feel like they're sort of intertwined but shame and guilt are are, yeah I would say they're my driving factors (laughs) so but then to go but to go against that that shame yeah and to do it anyway is so and I also just I love the things that you make oh thank you so much I think they're full of so much vulnerability and they're they're all so unusual I also love the fact it was band-aid wasn't it where you hired like an all-female crew yeah yeah which I think is such a cool thing to be able to oh, do. And, and I would love to know what that experience was like. And the, the experience that. was so earth shattering. It was amazing. It was, it, it exceeded all of my expectations in many ways. I, there, it was sort of multifactorial in terms of why I decided to hire all women on that film. Um, but I think one of the reasons was because it was my directorial debut and I had witnessed women behind the camera be treated differently. Um, I don't know. (laughs) uh, And, and sort of the questioning and condescension and, um, and doubt that, that I had witnessed um, women directors sort of contend with, I wanted to protect myself from, and it doesn't mean that there aren't women who do that to other women, but um but I just felt that this was going to give me better odds. So that was one selfish reason. But then a, a bigger reason was that, you know, I had witnessed also just the growth and equity on film and television crews um, and how just deeply underrepresented women were, um, especially in like camera grip and electric departments. And so, and I, and I, I knew the reason outside of just like general misogyny <laughs> was also because of this sort of cycle, because this was pre me too, but it, I think there was already some talk around gender equity in the, in this arena, but there was like very little walk. And I felt that the reason why there was very little walk was because, um, you know, making films on television is such a high stakes sort of pressure cooker in which those who are in charge of hiring are going to hire the people that they either know or that have an insane amount of credits. And those are generally white men because of the way that the decks have been stacked against, um, you know, everyone, everyone else. So, uh, so I, I felt that I had to like draw a line in the sand because I knew if I just said, let's try to hire more women, it just wouldn't happen. And I, I would have to actually like mandate um, that it had to be all women because, and, and even my, my female department heads, you know, there was like pushback because they were like, but I've been working with this dude for 10 years. Like, and he's my dude and he's awesome. And he's an amazing person, you know, and it, it doesn't take away from any of those things. But I was like, I know, but you have to, <laughs> you have to work with someone new. And part of that was just me seeing if this was actually in the realm of possibility where where mentorship and taking quote unquote risks on people with less experience could could work and it not only worked but it like was such a a revelatory creative environment for all of us that i think it shifted 
how a lot a lot of people, including the the male actors on set, like Adam Pally, who starred in it opposite me, many days was the only man on set, and, and that's the complete inverse of what generally he's you know the, the environments he's been in. And yeah, there was just a there was a marked shift in just the energy um, that I think was a really amazing space to create within. Of course, that was a space where I could have an entire control over hiring practices. And then I went on to work within the studio system. And that's a different, (laughs) there are different um, roadblocks in doing such things. But, um, but I've, I've tried my best to continue to really push up against those roadblocks it's amazing. It's like, um, oh God, I don't know if this is going to come out right, but very few things I say ever do. Uh, <laughs> it's like watering a plant, honestly, sometimes yeah. when I, like I, all of the people now on my team are, is it 99% women? Wow. Kind of over the, yeah. So I have like everyone around me, anyone who works with me in my company or works with me in this industry, like, every, like there's, there's, one, there's one guy. That's it's amazing. One guy. <laughs> and... <laughs> And uh, that's not from any kind of like hatred of men. It's just, it's a particular desire to understand that I have a certain element of power and I am aware as to how much it has healed me to have people nurture my confidence Mm -hmm. and make me feel like, you know, maybe I, not necessarily I can, but I might. Yeah. And people being willing to like take a gamble on me. Yes. Has, you know, even if I don't perform perfectly, it, it has completely changed me as a human being for someone just to give me a fucking chance yeah. just to say, oh, someone believes that I have some potential somewhere. Oh, that makes me want to find, I, like I found so many parts of myself that I would never have ever known existed had it not been for other people. And so now I would like to be that mm-hmm. for everyone else and kind of pay that forward. And so I especially love working with women. And it's t- so true what you say that sometimes they can be extremely toxic and we all have like <laughs> yeah. internalized misogyny that we're all in men and yep. women. Patriarchy can exist and everyone can harm everyone. It really harms men. You and I both yeah. feel, I think, quite quite strongly about that. Mm-hmm. Um it's incredible to watch someone blossom, someone who has clearly been told you can't, you shouldn't yeah. their whole life to just say, maybe you could, yeah. maybe you should. Yeah. Why don't you try? You know what? It's my bad if this goes wrong. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to gamble on you and I'm going to take the fall. And then almost every time they just exceed not just your expectations, but theirs more importantly. And that is an it's like a witnessing a miracle. Yes. Yeah. And it's like seeing their inner child, you know, talking back to that. Like you get to see it when they see that they pulled something off at the end of that filming. I imagine everyone, like, what was that rap party like? (laughs) The rap party was amazing. It was amazing. I mean, the whole thing was just so amazing. Um, But I do think oftentimes those those people who might have less experience or who you're taking the quote-unquote risk on are going to be that much hungrier to perform and and like those those miracles that you see that you know so-called miracles it's like it is really it's so amazing to watch someone sort of um embody their own creative agency because they're given the room to make a mistake or to just Mm. get off the bench you know um and and i think that is such an important lesson for us all like it took 
you know, a, a, a woman producer named Alex Madigan to say to me, I think you should direct a film. I didn't, I didn't think that I could until it literally just took one person. She didn't produce the film. She just was like, I believe in you. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? I just sprinkled some fairy dust <laughs> yeah. on you and then fucked up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, uh, and sometimes it, I think those sorts of even just mini mentorships, you know, are so essential. And I hope that more and more people, yeah, take them on because, um, because that's the only way we, we shift the paradigm and sort of start to subvert all of the fucked up um, institutionalized practices that are still very much at play. Well, thank you for actually walking the walk. Uh, definitely, it definitely inspires me uh, to continue to try harder and do better in that area, and and to encourage others to do the same. And and you have such an interesting life story, and you've been through so many different complex emotional things, and you've come out of it someone who you know certainly wears their vulnerabilities, and still you know you still um, participate in healing. Mm-hmm. It's an ongoing journey for you, but such a kind person mm. and it's very easy to just become a bit of a twisted asshole <laughs> when you're in pain you know and so I uh it's so nice to also find out that someone you really admire who's nice to you in like sort of two minute drips yeah. when you <laughs> yeah, see them exactly. out at events you never know what someone's really like it's been so uh eye-opening to get to know you today. oh I feel the same way and I'm so grateful to have gotten to know you this much more because I've always felt the same way of like every time I see you I'm like I want more of her. <laughs> no, same. And also the funniest thing is that you and I realized yesterday we've had each other's number for three years. It's so This whole time stupid. we've just been sort of tiptoeing near DM sort of once every six months. <laughs> I've had your fucking phone number. We've sent each other heart emojis. That's, uh, big, that's, that's big shit. Big shit. We sent each other yeah, yeah. big fucking shit. <laughs> we were taking, we were taking so, big shits on each other's doorsteps. I'm sure. telling you, we're responding to each other within minutes. Minutes, uh, yeah. <laughs> It was a great. It's it, what, what? How much time has been wasted? Oh, so we shall we shall remedy. I that. can't wait. And before you go, I have to ask you, what do you weigh? This one's so tough for me, Jamila. <laughs> I, mean, I, I know, know it's, it's tough, tough for everyone. everyone. <laughs> it's tough for everyone. Um, can I say something like kindness? Yeah, you can say whatever you want. Okay. Well, y- y- you can weigh your favorite sex toy. Like, I don't care. It oh. really just has to be. No, it can be the deepest or the least deep thing in the world. You know, I have a lot of favorite sex toys, but I will say, um, yeah, like I, I would hope to look back and say like that, that I was worth my weight in kindness. That's lovely. (laughs) We've been very kind today. (laughs) So have you. uh, And hopefully I will see you soon. I'm going to text you immediately. Please do. (laughs) Text me back straight away. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Aaron Finnegan, and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson, and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. We also have a bonus series exclusively on Stitcher Premium called Ask Jamila Anything. Check it out. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcher.com forward slash premium and using the promo code iWay. Lastly, over at iWay, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iwaypodcast at gmail.com. And now... 
we would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. I weigh being a good friend to the people in my life and being a kind stranger to those that I do not know. I weigh my eating disorder recovery, my healthy boundaries, my strength in removing myself from abusive relationships. I weigh my intelligence and my empathy. I weigh being a psychology major so that I can be a therapist. And I weigh my love for my dog. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.